1: Everett is the best there is at what he does, Bob. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Hey
0: Everyone, welcome to another edition of The Hall of Justice. This is episode 207. We appreciate all the ratings, the reviews, the subscriptions. Thank you so much for doing so. And we wouldn't have a podcast without it. You know, I've been talking about being a podcaster probably longer. Than anybody else, because we started before the thing was even a word. But I've never, ever compla- I've never exclaimed that I'm anything close to the best podcaster. And when I have talked about in the past on this show, on other shows, I've talked about it on the radio. When I've talked about the single greatest podcaster that I know, uh, it is our guest today on the Hall of Justice, which is bonkers. Uh, he's had a, an accomplished acting career, he's been on the radio for a long time. And he has done a couple of podcasts that have now been so successful, but it's not only that it is just there must listen. You have to listen to these shows and I've referenced them a number of times on this show. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a guy that, that our guest today works with Eddie, uh, and Eddie Pence was great and he has that comedy special and we helped promote that. But now we are pleased to welcome into the hall of justice, Ralph Garman himself. Holy moly! I can't believe you're even here. Welcome. Thank
1: you, thank you, Seth. Such kind words. I appreciate that.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that we have talked about in podcasting, and I wanted to start there because we're going to get to all the superhero stuff. And I, you know, you have your 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 Batman stuff, and I got to ask you some James Bond questions. I have all kinds of stuff to ask you, but the the idea of podcasting to me is they're intimate. They are, you, you know, the people you're listening to. And I yes. feel this is the first time we've ever spoken, but I feel like I know you. <laughs> like I know the inner workings of your life. I know the, the, the good, the bad. I know what you think is funny. And I know what you think is not funny. And I've, I've seen all that through the years. And I think that's amazing that you can communicate to an audience without having to have one-on-one conversations with people.
1: That is the magic of podcasting and, you know, by extension, radio as well. But I have been hanging my ass out there for the better part of two decades. So, yeah, my life has been uh, an open book to a lot of people for a long time. So I guess that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. And and you had a radio following. I mean, there was no secret you were on the radio for a long time. And, you know, I I. You don't have to say anything about intercom I've I've said it I've worked part time for intercom They're they they are what they are and in this pandemic they have just done what intercom would do and uh, that that, that's just that but when you created the first podcast the one with Kevin uh, Hollywood Babylon. Uh, When you guys created that show, and I've heard this story so many times, I feel like I know it, you guys were going to do a radio show, they didn't like it as a radio show, so you guys did it, and then it turned into a stage show and and whatnot. But what had you known about podcasting, and how much of that part of it was something that you were interested in? Was that a space you were even interested in, or was it just Kevin wanted to do something, so you rolled with it?
1: No, um, you know, when Kevin and I started Hollywood Babylon over a decade ago now, which is crazy. Jesus. My only exposure to podcasting really was through Kevin. Kevin had already been up and running with Smodcast, and I knew a little bit about uh Ricky Gervais's uh podcast as well. And so I heard funny. That 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 was the first
0: one I listened to. That's so funny.
1: And that was my only exposure to it. And I have to admit in retrospect, it's kind of embarrassing, but at the time I, I was a little snobby because I was on the number one rated morning show in the biggest market in radio at the time and podcasts, you know, little conversations being played on the internet. Oh, that's adorable kind of thing. That's (laughs) sort of my position and many of us in terrestrial radio especially at the time felt the same way it's like oh it's cute anyone can get on uh, the computer and and try to do radio like people can go on youtube and make little videos and stuff no one with the exception of people like kevin and rogan and carol and guys who later on became giants of the industry saw the potential and what it could be so when I got into it, largely, it was just so that Kevin and I could hang out once a week and do our thing. And he had a podcast theater at the time, yep. and he was really on the cutting edge of the idea of doing a podcast in front of a live audience as a live performance and then recording that and then putting that up as a podcast. So if if we were um, vanguards in any area, I think it's the fact that Hollywood Babylon was always performed in front of a live audience and so that changed the nature of what we were doing and and how it was received and how people responded to it because it became more than just a conversation between friends that people listened to we literally would put on a show for a crowd and that made us up our game a little bit you know
0: you know i I, i've told this story on the podcast before um there is a a really good chance and i'm not taking any credit for it because it wasn't my idea but There's a really good chance I'm one of the world's first podcasters. We were doing something at Major League Baseball in 2003. So this is two years before I heard Ricky Gervais' podcast, where we were doing a streaming show on something called Real Audio. And I was working for the league in the commissioner's office, and there was this big meeting. And they had this meeting, and they were talking about ways to, to market the show that we were doing. And somebody had the idea of taking portions of it and making it an MP3 that you could put out on the MLB.com website. And then they would turn it into something you could put on this new device, the iPod. Mm -hmm. And we did that for like a good six to 10 months before we ever heard the word podcast. As a matter of fact, we thought it was a joke. We thought people were mocking what we were doing with the word podcast. We didn't we didn't know. And it wasn't until I heard Ricky Gervais's podcast, and then I heard one of Kevin's early podcasts. You know, I'm from Jersey, and you know, it was so funny when I had Kevin on this show. We did the Six Degrees of Separation with all these people that I, I, I know like actively in my life that work with him, uh, JC Reifenberg, you know, and, and sure. Min Chen, you know, and like yeah. they weren't like casual people. It was it was constantly, and uh, there was this licensing guy that was doing something with the movies for Kevin and says to my wife, uh, hold on, I have Kevin Smith on the other line. And my wife's reaction was, oh, him again? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you guys keep crossing paths. I
0: ju- and I just said, and I said to this guy, this guy, Stuart, I just said, I'd love to have him on the podcast, but honestly, I swear to you, if it's not now, it'll be another time. You brought something to it, though. There was, you prep a lot, and I, and I know you prep a lot, because you can see the amount of work that goes into it. But the reactions and that's a skill. And I I, I wanted to ask you about that skill, because I think listeners of podcasts would wonder, you know, everyone thinks they're a wise guy. They think they're pretty sharp. But you'll get some woman who will say some random thing about her breasts and you have the perfect return. And those aren't scripted. You don't you can't plan those. Right. How when did you realize that that was an innate skill? And what kind of a skill is that?
1: Well, you know, I've been training in a lot of weird ways for this kind of work for a long time without even knowing it, because, you know, initially I wanted to be an actor. That's how I started in the industry. But I ended up working in sketch and improv comedy. And so spending years on stage doing improv that just that strengthens a whole different set of muscles that a lot of broadcasters don't necessarily have experience with. So I was doing sketch and improv and I took those tools that I learned and I moved that to radio, which is very much an impromptu medium. I mean, you, you do prep and stuff, but you have to sort of be on your toes and be able to come up with stuff off the cuff. And so the combination of having performed in front of a live audience and done comedy, plus then doing a ton of radio the combination of that those skill sets i think lend themselves to podcasting or broadcasting in front of a live audience because you're using you're using both of those you know
0: more of the hall of justice but first a message from dc comics and warner brothers home entertainment star girl the complete first season Stargirl was on the DC Universe, then moved to the CW, and it is a great show. And I'm not just saying that. It's now available on digital Blu-ray DVD. It's available September 29th, so next week, if you're listening to this on the day that it was released. It's about Jeff Johns and his career in comic books. He created Stargirl, lovingly inspired by his late sister, who was killed in a plane explosion. Courtney Whitmore, as she inspires an unlikely group of young heroes. It's cute. It has legacy in D.C. There's the Justice Society of America, and then there's these teenagers, and the villains have arcs to them, and we had Nelson Lee on the podcast, and he talks about the series, and even though you don't ever see his face, (laughs) we didn't know that at the time, uh, he's great, and the storylines are great. We're not going to spoil the end, but it was a great first season, and it got renewed for a season two. Breck Bessinger is great. She's fantastic. We told you about Nelson Lee. Amy Smart's in it. Luke Wilson, uh, old school himself, <laughs> Luke Wilson is in it. Yeah, he's great too. Um, the whole show is just a lot of fun. And again, it was originally DC Universe, it's ne- it was then on the CW. That's where I saw it, and now it's out on Blu ray, digital, and DVD. And it's great, and it can play with Voodoo and iTunes and all the available retailers that you can find. Uh, if you're quarantined and you haven't seen this yet, it's a great show. It's really enjoyable. Um, I would say it's as good as anything else with the CW. And uh, if you watch The Crisis on Infinite Earths, it's in it, it's, it's part of it. So uh, it's all connected. Stargirl, the complete first season, is currently available to own on digital, Blu-ray, and DVD. Now back to the show. Look, we fast forward, and I mean, if you want to talk about uh, K-Rock, I, I'm, it's your, you're, you're it's your show, desk. Seth. You're Ask more the more than questions, welcome to... man. Well Don't no put it on I, just, me. I, I I hate I hate what's happening to radio, yeah. and I rip it it's constantly, sad. and it's disgusting. And it's happening all over. It's not just no. K-Rock. It's, it's no. everywhere. There's a station in Milwaukee. I'll just give an example. Uh, there's a station in Milwaukee who's been cruising along for so long. The pandemic hit. Now they took them off their FM signal and they put them on 1520 mm. AM. How long is that station going to yeah. be around? Like, that's a joke. And I, I, I hate it. Uh, it, it. It drives me bananas. But you're in this position where you're off the radio and you decide you're going to create your own right. thing. Your, your your own podcast and you had this skill from Hollywood Babylon. You had done it for a while. Um, was this something that you were, was this a last resort? Was this something that you were just like, wait a minute, I know how to do this. I can put something together. How confident were you? You see how it's, there's seven questions for one question, but take me through how you decided to do a daily podcast on your own and have it be the quality of Hollywood Babylon.
1: Well, it was uh, a lot of those things, a lot of those feelings at the same time. I was uh, let go from the show that I'd been with for 18 years with very little notice. And there I was uh, married at the time with a small child. So I knew I had. I didn't have the luxury of sort of sitting back and licking my wounds and saying, "Okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I was obligated to start working right away and. I took meetings with some other stations in LA. Um, oh, you did? yeah, there were uh, a few interested parties because I had come off of a really successful show and, and, um, people were kind enough to consider me a large part of the success of that show. So there were people who were interested, but no one really had a good time slot. And, um, the offers that I were getting were frankly a little, uh, insulting in terms of what the money was, because as you mentioned, you know, radio, um, at the end of my career in radio, radio was already starting to struggle and suffer and the corporatization of multiple stations being lumped together and just, it was being run poorly. So it wasn't a good time to find a new radio gig. So, you know, and it's funny, Kevin plays a large role in my life in general, but we had a, a breakfast uh, after I'd been fired. And he said, so what are you gonna do? And I said, I don't know, man, I just, um, I, I, I guess I got to find a station that's willing to pick me up. I'd love to do morning drive again, or maybe afternoon. And he said, you dope. We've been doing Babylon for, you know, at the time was eight years or something. He said, you don't need anyone's permission anymore to reach your audience. Those days are gone. You don't need a, a radio station to hire you in order to get back in touch with those people. They're there and they love you. And they're waiting for you. Just do your own thing. And so that's when the light bulb went off. And I said, of course, you know, I was trapped in this old mindset of, oh, someone has to hire me in order for me to be able to communicate with my audience. And I should have known better because Kevin and I were doing it on our own for years. And it just didn't strike me that I could do that again. And it was an awakening and it was terrifying because I knew this show wouldn't be Babel and it wouldn't be in front of a live audience and it wouldn't be with Kevin who introduced me to a massive new audience that I never would have reached otherwise. Did
0: that conversation exist at all about having him be a part of what would become your show?
1: No, because I knew Babylon was out there and it existed and we had no intention of not continuing with Hollywood Babylon, so that was its own thing and I wanted to keep it that way. Plus, I realized early on, especially because I was going to be on Patreon, I was going to be monetizing my podcast, and I was going to ask people to throw a little money my way every month in order to hear this new show. So in order to do that, my obligation to the audience was I'm going to try to provide them as much content in the most beneficial way to them as possible so that I could stand out from what was already a very crowded podcast market. And so I knew I was going to do a daily show. That was a decision I made early on. I was going to do a Monday through Friday morning type show for the audience who missed me, especially in that capacity. And I couldn't put that on Kevin. I was going to ask him to do a morning show with me uh, every morning. I knew this was something I had to do on my own, from my own place, in my own way. And that was the birth of the Ralph Report.
0: But the, and the logic behind them, there's two follow-ups to that, because number one, you know, at the time when you started it, it was obvious that you had to do it the night before because the New York Times has this massively successful podcast, The Daily, which is literally like a documentary level podcast. And just so we can hate them even more, uh, they have six people that work on it. Right. Hell, if you give me six people, my Hall of Justice production value will go up a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, six I people would, would be would be great. Yes. And so it, I knew that that was uh, the, the the way you were pulling it off, and it was it was fascinating to me about how many people rushed to help. These yeah. people were coming out of the woodwork to offer segment ideas and suggestions and songs. They were recording songs, and I'm yeah. I'm thinking to myself. That is probably one of the most rewarding things about the whole thing is literally you're not on an island. You're not just doing this on your own. And you're the only person I've ever seen on Patreon that is not either signing things or showing their breasts or something. Because everybody (laughs) on Patreon, like I know this woman who's on Patreon. She does a podcast. It's about sex that I could see. That makes sense. I could see people paying, you know, ninety nine cents or two dollars, whatever it is you're doing a a bunch of yucks you're doing a comedy thing and when i tell you it's become addictive you uh, literally and especially pre-pandemic i would drive up because i teach a class up at syracuse and i live in new jersey and i have a three and a half hour drive once a month and i'll catch up on episodes and you'll be with me for literally three and a half hours and the time goes by so freaking fast and i could only pray that people listen to a show that loyally
1: oh that's that's kind of you and that was the and you're idea- already on the
0: show so i don't have to kiss your ass
1: no that was the idea was let me be uh the co-pilot in people's cars the way that i was when i was doing morning radio that was the response i was always getting from people when i was on the radio was i feel like i know you you're in my car with me i'm to drive to work or whatever it's great to have you there every morning and i said to myself then that's the experience i want to replicate with this And the difference was, like you said, here I am by myself. I don't have a a crew of uh, audio guys who are putting together clips and things for me. I don't have people uh, to work with at the time. When I first started, I didn't. And I was like, what is this show going to be? And there were some growing pains because initially I said, well, I do a thing with Kevin and I did this other thing with a bunch of other voices on the air. Maybe I'll just do a solo thing where I'll just talk directly to the audience. And very early on, people responded with, you're at your best when you're bouncing stuff off other people, you really should add somebody to the show. And that's when that's when I asked Eddie to come on as sort of the second chair. So I had somebody to talk to in the room, which was a huge benefit.
0: And he's so self-deprecating, he didn't tell it. How did you know him?
1: um, Eddie's just a a friend of mine now. He wasn't a friend at the time. He was just an acquaintance Mm. that I would just see all the time hanging out because He's a stand up and he uh, initially I got to know him when we were doing Hollywood Babylon at the John Lovitz comedy club. Um, he would hang out there because he was <laughs> often performing. And then when we moved to the improv here in L.A., he was hanging out quite a bit and he would pitch in and help sell merch or just hang out and chat. And I just thought he was a really good, good guy, guy yeah. and a really funny guy. And so when I realized I needed a, uh, a guy to sit across from me to, to talk to. I said to myself, "Who would be new? Somebody that you know uh, I, that people weren't already used to hearing me talk to, but also who would make a good fit with that." And Eddie just came to mind, and so I reached out to him and I said, "Look, you know, you're a stand-up. You work mostly at night. If you have uh, afternoons or early evenings free, why don't you sit in and see if we can make this work?" And it just immediately uh, started to click. It really started. And but as you mentioned, are, I'm yeah. sorry, but as you mentioned, right. people started sending in jingles and bit ideas oh and God. songs. And I always say it. I felt like Jimmy Stewart at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, where people just start showing up and dumping <laughs> buckets of cash on the table to help out George Bailey. That's what I felt like. I thought I was alone in the world the and maybe waiting
0: for like, a husband.
1: <laughs> yeah, the whole neighborhood shows up and just starts supporting in such a big, amazing way. And that, that way, the garmi, as we call them, the listener, yeah, yeah. the listeners of the show have been that way throughout. They're just endlessly creative and supportive and giving, and not only to me, but to each other as well. And this community that has been built out of this show has been enormously rewarding.
0: And it's funny because Eddie uh, was an interesting uh, model. You know, I reached out to Eddie literally to help him with his uh, iTunes special, you know, the, the, the comedy special. Mm-hmm. That was that was the genesis of all of this stuff. And and he uh, he was very gracious and, and, and appreciated that we had tried to do that. And I compared the role because there's a guy who's on this podcast a lot. His name is Victor Dandridge, and he's an artist and a writer. And he does like our movie reviews. But what the podcast has done is it's helped build his brand. He has benefited from the exposure that this show has gotten him, and I would imagine Eddie the same way. I mean, Eddie doesn't get that comedy special unless he's on your show. And the fact that people have just fallen—you know, fallen—I don't know—I don't know about that—but they 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 have endeared themselves to Eddie to such the level that it is, I would imagine, boosted Eddie's career in a great number.
1: Very much so. And, but that's just paying it forward, you know, because that's what happened with me and Smith because I was a well-known entity in LA for people who listened to morning radio. I had a certain amount of cachet in this particular town, but outside of Los Angeles, no one knew who the hell I was. Then Kevin Smith teams up with me for Hollywood Babylon. And suddenly I've got a fan base that stretches to the UK and to Canada and to Europe and around the world, I've been exposed to his audience and and I share them now with him in a way that never would have happened if Kevin didn't bring me on board for Babylon. So what, what Eddie has experienced through my listeners is the same thing that I went through with Kevin's. It's just, you know, it's, it's just good. Paying it forward. That's a great, it's good karma. It's just good. Uh, It's a good way to live your life that if you can find people that that are good people who have talent to expose them to an existing audience that you're lucky enough to have, it's never a bad idea because there's a there's you know, there's no finite amount of love that an audience can have for people that they enjoy. They're always willing to bring someone else into the fold. And so that's what that's what has happened with Eddie.
0: Well, and I've always found that podcasts don't compete. No, you know, you're, you're not competing. If you're listening to uh, 710 in L.A., uh, you're not listening to K-Rock. You know, right. it's, it's one or the other. But in a podcast, you can download Ralph's, download Kevin's, download this one, download this guy's and you can download them all. And so ever since and we learned that very, very early when I started this show, uh, I would plug other people's podcasts all the time because if you heard something that was worthwhile, that you're not hurting your audience and you're not hurting your show's chances. We got lucky. I mean, I I I, I, I make no secret, I got very lucky because I didn't do anything to do it. We had Zack Snyder on the podcast when it was in its infancy. And it was because I was doing some stuff for NBC Sports and he was doing something for the Super Bowl with Doritos. That's literally the, the connection. And I have Zack Snyder on the show, and all I said to Zack Snyder is you know, nobody goes into a Zack Snyder movie and just says, boy, that was good popcorn and walks out. They either love Zack Snyder's movies or they can't stand Zack Snyder's movies. Right. And I don't know what came over Zack Snyder, but he decided to rip Superman fans and somebody at Variety heard it and wrote an article about it. And that show got, a you know, 330,000 downloads. And I thank Zack Snyder all the time because he put his foot in his mouth. I didn't ask him and I didn't goad him and I didn't market it because I don't know how to market shit. So it was, <laughs> it was, It was wild and it gave this show a life and it gave this podcast a shelf and it was allowing it because then the back episodes were getting a bump from sure of course and and it and you and it just grew like wildfire and so now the audience is consistent and it grows you know incrementally a little bit each time but the idea is is that you're not by saying you're a Hall of Justice listener, you can be a Hall of Justice listener and a Hollywood Babylon listener, and you can do it at your leisure.
1: Mm-hmm. And no
0: one can tell you there's no there's no quota of, of podcasts. You know, there's no limit to what they can. And I think especially in today's day and age, one of the things that I can't listen to and we I, I want to move on from podcasting. But one of the things I can't listen to is I can't handle the commercials, the, the radio commercials, not Kevin Smith talking about Manscaped, which was hilarious. It's, it's, um, those, those are fun commercials. Not, I don't want to hear a Budweiser commercial and I can't stand the callers, the John from New York, John from Yonkers that wants to trade Derek Jeter to the, to the Red Sox. I, I, that stuff drives me bananas and podcasting just eliminates that. It just eliminates that no matter what your subject is. I, I'm still a sports person. I still listen to sports podcasts, but you don't have the fluff that radio just permeates, and it just it just exists. Um, Are you going to release a
1: four hour cut of your interview with uh, Zach Snyder? Are you going to do like the the the, yeah, the that, Snyder well, cut of the well, of that podcast?
0: You know how many times on Twitter I get a, is he coming back on? Yeah, because <laughs> it was it it worked so well for him last time. Uh, it was wild. It was it it was it was wild when that happened, and all of a sudden the Variety story and they had the link in it. And I went, Oh boy. And the next thing you know, it was great. And, and, you know, I had podcasts that had failed. I started one in 2011 that didn't work. And I said, this isn't going to do anything. And in 2015, I created sports with friends. And then I created this thing called the hall of justice. And that was one thing that I wanted to, as we transition, you've always been a, a comic book, superhero, sci-fi fan, but yours, your podcast, when you guys did Babylon, you have this seg segment. You call it a uh, uh, what's it called? Geek. Geek news.
1: news. Yeah.
0: And you would talk about things that I had program directors, and I just wonder if your guys at K Rock said again, in the late '90s, when I was doing sports radio in Denver, Colorado, I would reference Batman, and they would say, "You don't. know, this is for men. you don't. Mm-hmm. You don't. You don't reference." you know, uh, Batman or Superman or any of those, those dudes. And the movies were doing well. And it was still, you never talked about it. I remember there was a controversy because they put Spider-Man on second base in baseball. And that was a big deal. And I was like, Oh, you can't put Spider-Man on second base. And you guys were openly talking about superhero crap. And I just wondered, did you ever get crap for doing that? Cause your fanhood didn't start with a podcast.
1: I would get crap for it on radio. I early on in my tenure at the morning show here in L.A., I would talk about going to Comic-Con and wow. the other two hosts would mock me openly about how uh, what, a, what a, a nerd I was, what a geek I was, what a child I was. And by the end of my time there on that show, we started broadcasting live from Comic-Con every time it was down there in San Diego um, they, they 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 eventually realized what they were missing out on and you know those of us who are longtime comic sci-fi guys uh, are are eager always to point out you know I was into it before it was cool before they were before the Marvel <laughs> universe existed but it's true I just I always liked the stuff and I was never shy about it and I never really cared what other people thought so I would make references and the and the small percentage of people early on in my career who got it loved it because it's like yeah. getting a secret message from someone else in the club. So when I started working with Kevin, that was one of the bonding, um, moments we had in our friendship. We were friends before we started working together. And mm. the fact that he and I could sit and talk for a couple hours about a new comic he had written, or what was going on in the industry, or the latest thing we had seen—it um, was just—it was the um, the seed that was planted in our relationship as friends. So it just made sense to carry it over into Babylon when we were doing it. At least a portion of it to dedicate it to that world, because obviously Kevin's fans are a bunch of geeks as well. You know,
0: one of the things that I've noticed now, though, is these movies are being made by people who were fans. You know, we're in the same age demographic as some of these directors. You know, if you look at J.J. Abrams or Ryan Coogler, these guys were fans mm-hmm. like we were. And you could tell that they love the properties and you could yes. tell it's being made very differently. Uh, you had a, a thing with uh, when Joel Schumacher passed away and there was this argument about Joel Schumacher and Joel Schumacher didn't love Batman. No, they, you know, he he made a Batman movie and he loved his movie, but he didn't love the character, whereas, The people who are making the the, the current or the recent you know, Christopher Nolan, whatever whatever your Batman drug of choice is, the idea is these people are diehard fans that also have incredible talent. And Mm -hmm. I think the properties have improved because of that. You know, when you watch those Netflix series, you know, the Daredevils or 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 the Mandalorian that's out now and just these ideas, Favreau loves Star Wars. And you can tell he loves it while he's making it. And that, I don't think we, you and I are similar in age. And I don't think, I don't think that we had that growing up. We had someone trying to convince us that Superman could be a movie. Now it's like everyone has an opinion on how to make a Superman movie.
1: Yeah. um, I think sometimes the the super fandom can work for or against a project. You know, Um, I I, I had this, uh, playful argument with Eddie Pence when I first started watching Mandalorian because I hadn't watched for a while and he insisted that I watch it. And I found the first couple episodes uh, in particular, when I finally got around to it just so jam packed full of Easter eggs that it was yeah. almost distracting for me. They were so desperate to say, hey, Star Wars fans, look, we're just <laughs> like you. Look, remember this guy from that movie? And look at this with this robot from that other movie. And I was like, <laughs> We get it, we get it. You're OK. This is Star Wars. OK, everyone take a breath. Just tell me the story. So there can be a little too much fan service sometimes. You got to find that balance. And I think the Mandalorian certainly did as it got further on in that, that first season. But um, so it's, it, it can be tricky. But I think if you have true respect for the character and the, uh, the source material, if you're a talented filmmaker or storyteller, then that's really more important than even being a fan is just saying, okay, I'm going to be true to this character's, nature or history or whatever because that's really at the end of the day all fans really want is just the, the the characters that they love to be treated respectfully right
0: we'll be back with more of the hall of justice but first i have to tell you about another podcast i do and yeah we talk about it from time to time but anybody who knows my career knows it's a sports broadcasting career yes i love the hall of justice so much I also started a podcast that is called Sports with Friends. It's a play on words because my mother always played words with friends. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to see if I have as many friends in the industry that could come on a show and be open and honest and have a friendly chat. So I started the podcast and said, every guest is a friend, but then I found out that some of my friends are in PR and they book guests for the show. They've asked me to put people I've just meeting. So now every guest is a friend or a friend of a friend. We play Jewish geography. Some of the past guests on this show can be really close friends like Dave Softie Mahler or Andrew Siciliano. And some of them are big icons that are also friends. Ken Griffey Jr. thinks he made my career. Martin Brodeur, the best goalie in the history of the NHL. And we also tackle big topics. We'll find out about cord cutting for a sports fan or the life and death of Kobe Bryant. And then there was Nancy Lieberman's appearance. What a story she had to tell. And then there's Eli Manning, who's been on the podcast five times and counting. All I know is if you listen to Sports with Friends, you'll hear some great guests. You'll hear so many stories, and you'll feel like you know not only them, but me. Check out Sports with Friends wherever you can get your podcast. And If you're listening to this one, I guarantee you, you'll find Sports with Friends right there. Just this idea that, this stuff, I don't know if you've seen the, the recent show, The Boys. Ah, just, love it. Is that, is that incredible? So much. And I don't know, I can't find things to criticize that. Like, I can i can criticize Avengers. There's, there's things, it's great, but there are nitpicky things if you wanted to take a look, and you can have a healthy discussion about the Avengers. The Boys, I can't see a thing wrong with this thing, and... It just seems to up the ante every time. And as great as season one was, season two is literally that much better.
1: Yeah. And I wasn't familiar with the graphic novels. So was I. I was lucky that I didn't have to compare it to the source material and have to say, wait a minute, Huey would never do that because I remember an issue too. You know, you don't have to play that game with yourself. So uh, sometimes a little ignorance is truly bliss when you can separate and step back from, from characters and just enjoy whatever the, the, product is that's put in front of it and i say that about all comic book sci-fi based kind of material when people start saying but in the other iteration that never ha-. i'm like just take it for what it is judge it solely on those merits don't compare it to anything else because you're only going to be disappointed if that's the prism that you look at everything through look i'm a huge adam west 60s Batman, oh, I mean, I'm aware, yes, TV guy, that's my Batman. And I adore that, that product to this day. And I've got a room full of vintage merch and stuff. And I've written a comic book based on those characters and Adam West was my pal, That's incredible. but it doesn't mean that I won't go into the Matt Reeves movie and enjoy that for whatever that is. I, I don't, I don't feel like it's a, it's a competition in any way. And I think that's the healthiest way to watch these things is at the end of the day, it's just entertainment. It's just a movie or a TV show. And for God's sakes, if if, you know, recent history has taught us nothing, there's other things that we should be concerned about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's funny that you say that, because when I was studying to get into broadcasting, at first, I thought I wanted to be a political reporter. Mm. That was just the idea. I, I, I knew I wanted to do communications, but I wasn't sure. And. I learned very early the story of Dan Rather. And I, I, I think this is a lesson for all young uh, uh, journalists. Uh, Dan Rather was a, was a correspondent for CBS. He was doing his job and he got, just happened to be in 1963, sent to Dallas to cover uh, the president's appearance there. And the next thing you know, he's an eyewitness to this unmistakable tragedy. And he excelled at that moment. And Dan Rather became the replacement for Walter Cronkite. Right. I was just like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to have to be in front of the Twin Towers to 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 make a name for myself. And that's when I gravitated towards sports because this genre didn't exist. And at the time, sports was the only thing that you could say. People have the passion that they have. They take it so seriously. God, you can't say the St. Louis Cardinals name in vain. You're you're speaking ill of the world and if you do that you realize you're still not digging ditches you're not talking about the fate of the planet yeah um and it's it, it's very it's very different and one of the things that i have noticed is you keep the headlines of today the, the 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 politics and everything that's going on and we're recording this and releasing this after the election and we still don't know what the hell's going on but just the idea that but you don't shy away from it on social media no and that's not it's not a criticism. It's, it's really, I wonder, uh, is that something that's calculated or listen, that's, that's who you are. You, you, you have this voice, you want to use it, but you keep it out of your shows. And I yes. find that interesting.
1: I think my job when I'm doing my show is give someone an hour and change. If it's the Ralph report or an hour and a half, if it's Hollywood Babylon, give somebody a respite from whatever, Is going on in their lives that is causing them stress or strain or sadness it is supposed to be a delivery system for some sort of joy give them a smile a laugh something to think about that is my only job when um when I'm doing those shows and I take that seriously and I, I think if i were to start to interject and i don't you know occasionally it'll come up and uh, maybe a, a, a right. joke or a crack here and there because look we're just human and we're all living in the world and you can't isolate yourself completely but for the most part i keep it out and i think because my responsibility is that regardless of whatever you land wherever you land on the political spectrum or whatever your feelings are regarding politics or the state of the world or whatever this should be a place where you can go and spend some time uh, where you don't have to think about that stuff. We all need a mental vacation uh, from whatever's going on in our lives. And I've heard from people who are battling illnesses or going through depression or the loss of a loved one. It's not just politics. There's a lot of shit that we all have to sort of sift through every day. And if I can give someone uh, an island to be on for an hour and change that, um, that gives them a breather then that's my my responsibility, and I, and I take it seriously. However, if you're following me on Twitter or Instagram or some other social media, that's my time to be myself, and I'm not trying necessarily to change anyone's mind or to take a stand or use my voice for anything, but I am going to express my feelings, sure. and if you're following me, then I think you are taking the responsibility of having to listen, and it, trust me, it's easy to not listen to me on social media. and A lot of people have abandoned me and I get that and it's fine, but that's not my job. Social media isn't my job. You know, the shows are my job and I, and I try to do the best I can by my audience.
0: But did you notice and, you know, I don't I don't keep a daily count, but I noticed I lost at least 600 followers during the course of the covid time. Uh, mm. I'll tweet something like wear a mask and I'll lose followers because I'm considered a socialist. And then I, I, I wrote, uh, there was one thing I wrote where, uh, where um, I suggested that I thought the Meadowlands could have uh, 10,000 people safely. New Jersey's numbers are, are, are doing well. And I think the atmosphere would be so much better if mm. even with those crappy teams, like I just think put some people in the building to give it a little bit of an atmosphere. I've been to an NFL game and I've been to a baseball game with no fans and it's really weird. And when I've seen those, and I suggested that, and I've been called now a conservative. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not saying pack the place. I'm not talking about Alabama. I, it, it's, it's just amazing how everything is stereotyping. And what I like people to do is just understand that why you have to be one side, like, I, I, I mean, we can talk about it for one second. I think you understand and I think I understand the Republican tax plan. I get it, makes a lot of sense. And if you have a lot of money, I I understand why people would like it. But why does that have to mean that if I like the Republican tax plan, I'm not saying I do, I'm just saying, if you like the Republican tax plan, why must you be pro-life? Why can't you be both? Why can't you have an opinion on something that's just your own formed opinion? Why does it have to tow a company line? And I don't know, I don't get the fracturing, and I don't know if it's Fox News that's created it or social media that's created it, but it is a nastiness that we have created in our society.
1: It's all of the above. I think social media plays a huge role in it, but I think the uh, compartmentalization of our, our news and our media outlets where everyone is serving a boutique audience, there's no sort of national touchstones anymore when it comes to media you know when i was growing up you had three networks and the news was a loss leader they weren't trying to make a profit off of news programming so they would just report the facts and when i went into school the next day all the kids were talking about hey did you watch you know that episode of the incredible hulk last night and we had sort of a commonality there was a common language that we all shared as americans in terms of how we digested our information and our media now everything is so boutique and so fractured into micro audiences that there has been the invention of this weird purity test that everybody has you know you're not a real star wars fan unless you you think x y and z you're not a real Republican, unless you believe every single one of right. these lists that I have to check off in order to you be to give you the rubber stamp of approval. All these purity tests exist on all these different aspects in our lives, and no one can be less than anymore. You're immediately dismissed. It is an impossible way to exist. We can't, it's unsustainable. We can't communicate with each other if we keep demanding that we have to be. The, whatever that is whatever that that model is that you're using as the only acceptable way to be
0: i i i i get it and i i i wasn't trying to get all political i just think that there's something that can be said that we can just be fair to each other and i i, I just accept that that we can we can have that that conversation um adam it's west, not even
1: it's not even politics before you get to adam west it's not it, even politics like i said it goes, it goes across all boundaries whether it's uh, the entertainment that we watch now, or the political positions that we take, or whether you're—you uh, know—I—I I went recently on the show when uh, when Sean Connery passed. I talked about Sean Connery's achievements in movies. And I received such backlash from a certain portion of my audience saying, well, you know, he said it's OK to hit a woman and you're supporting a, a, a wife beater and he is an awful human being. And how can you say that he's a great man? And I was put in a position of responding by saying I never said he was a great man. I never said he was um, my uh, moral barometer for how to behave in relationships. I never talked about his personal life or standing at all. Purposefully, I avoided all of that. I strictly was referring to what he had accomplished as a, as a cinema actor, as a movie star. Right, right. And I think those two ideas can exist Have in the be. world at yeah. the same time. You can recognize that he did great work on screen, but you can also recognize that some of the things he said about how to treat women were awful and archaic right. and unacceptable and no one should use him as an example of how to behave. But those two they don't necessarily have to cancel each other out. Those two ideas, you know, if you can like his movies and not be considered a wife beater. Um, and as, I, th- as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it. sometimes the world is gray and sometimes people can do good things, but they're also flawed human beings and they do bad things too. It's we've lost any sense of uh, understanding the complexities of people or issues or lives everything has to be now so one or the other it's hard to be in the communications business right now because of that i think
0: yeah and the media has been getting throttled and it's it's they're they're, they're their own worst enemy print media and broadcast media they've been getting crushed as it is and you know we were saying earlier about what's happened to radio and you know this, this vitriol doesn't, doesn't help. All right. I no. got a couple of quick uh, superhero questions for you Yeah, um, move on to happier talks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Adam West, uh, you were a big fan. Actually, I think the first time I ever saw you and knew it was actually you was when you gave one of the Blu-rays a tour of your Batman collection. And I was just like, that's the guy I li- I listened to that guy. I knew who that guy was. And I couldn't, I, I didn't put two and two together. Um, How did you connect with Adam West and when you were a a fan uh, or just a fan, was it hard to, you know, you've interviewed celebrities your whole life and you've been around celebrities your whole life. That's not, that's not shocking, but this was your guy. This was, this was different. This was not just another celebrity.
1: Yeah. I, I have met a lot of famous people just by the nature of doing morning radio here in L.A. A ton of people come through the doors trying to promote or sell whatever their latest project is. So we would get a really great lineup of guests my whole career. But the, the people that you were a fan of when you were a kid were always the most difficult people to talk to because you instantly become that nine year old again when you're in the presence of Adam West or William Shatner or all these guys that I would meet and you know you can meet much bigger stars in quotes and have a perfectly normal conversation but when you run up against your childhood idols it's always difficult and that was the first experience i had with adam because as you mentioned i was a fan since i was a tiny kid um and then the first time i met him was when he came through the doors at the radio station to promote i believe it was his autobiography at the time and just you know i made a fool of myself but he's enormously he was enormously um kind and and forgiving in that way because he have to keep in mind he has been running up against that for 50 years from of course people, you know and so that was the initial meeting and then you know i started working on family guy and he of course was the mayor of Kohog on family guy so we would run into each other at the studio and we would sit in the green room waiting to go in to record our lines and we would chat. And then I started having him more on the show to promote other things. And eventually we developed an actual friendship to the point where I got to know him and his family and we would hang out. And, um, you know, uh, I worked hard to get him his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And we made a documentary film about that process. And so towards the end of his life, we got to be very, very close. And it was it truly was sort of a remarkable uh, bonus to have in your life where you can be blessed with a genuine friendship from someone that you held in such high regard as a kid and not be disappointed if anything like them more than you did, you know, when you just were admiring their work. And, um, it was, it was one of the great, one of the great relationships in my life for sure.
0: The, the only Adam West joke I can tell you is I remember as a kid, I was a big uh, Super Friends fan. <laughs> and Elaine Soleil, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, he was the voice of Batman. Alan Soleil, and, yeah. And it was very... He had a high-pitched voice. And he... Uh, that was just, just his thing. I mean... The reason I named the show the Hall of Justice, the idea was if you're old enough to know what the Hall of Justice is, you're our demographic. That was, I was trying to show that it was not a geek show and it was not for kids. It was for grownups that knew this genre. Mm. And that was the idea of it. But the Super Friends were always this, you know it's part of the open and it's, it, it's, it's been this theme. And I remember talking to Alan Burnett about it. And I just remember being as a kid, thinking that Adam West was the serious Batman. <laughs> Because Alan Soleil was so light and, and fluffy. And he was very serious. And, Robin, and the way he would talk, well, you do it better than anybody. But just this idea that he was serious. And then when the Super Friends got a little bit more serious, they got Adam West to voice it. And I was like, oh, my God. They, he you were was right. the serious. <laughs> this is years before Michael Keaton even. But it was, it was wild. Adam West to me growing up, because I, I'm a little younger than you, was always he was the more serious batman and the super friends guy was the lighter one
1: that's funny (laughs) yeah adam you know that was the beauty of adam's work in that show was when you were a kid it was deadly serious stuff and you know when he said things like um robin i could tell you were still alive the way your boot was still dangling out of the mouth of that giant clam like, wow, he's he made it. That's right. That's that's a genius deduction that Batman made. And then when you get older, you start to recognize the comedy and the 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 brilliance of his performances. It's just it worked on so many levels. And that's one of the reasons I was able to maintain my my fandom, you know, throughout my whole life, because I can still watch that show. And I'm doing it now with Kevin. We're doing Cape commentaries over at Hollywood Babylon where I watch the show and give Kevin a, a deep dive of trivia about each episode but I'll still catch things in a performance of his that I missed the first 200 times I threw that. I watched that show. So yeah, he was, he was one of a kind and uh, it was a perfect marriage of character and performer. And it's still, it works on so many levels.
0: And I thought it was a great homage to it in the, uh, when the CW did their crisis Yeah, and they did, you know, all the different universes, including earth 66. And it was, yeah, and they had War, Bert, and I, yeah. I thought that was brilliant. And at the time, Lyle Wagner was alive. And I said that they should have had Lyle Wagner be the old Batman. because <laughs> He was the other guy. And if Adam West couldn't do it, he would be the other guy. And he was the other screen be, test, right? That would be right. It's like, you know, Christopher Reeve couldn't be Superman. So Brandon Routh puts that costume on and he's that guy. And you play that theme. And, you know, you could you could you can have the like the torch being passed, kind of like uh, Ewan McGregor, how he's now Ben Kenobi.
1: Right. You know what I mean? You mm-hmm. obviously
0: couldn't do Alec Guinness, but you have Ben Kenobi uh, in existence. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is you have a propensity, um, and I don't know if there's a connection to it or if it's a subconscious thing, to stuff in England. You are very into what's going on in the UK. You, um, you love James Bond.
1: Yes, I'm a, I'm a major Anglophile. I love, I love the UK enormously.
0: And I, and what is it about it? And it's not a knock. I like the UK just fine, but it's you. You have a passion for it. It's one of your things, and it's very interesting because James Bond was never big in my house. It, it exists in in its time, and there's so many films. You know them all like the back of your hand, yes. And that's pretty impressive because it's a huge body of work.
1: Um, I I guess I was a weird kid in the sense that I was probably born a little bit out of. Uh, joint when it came to the time that I grew up in, because the biggest things to me when I was a kid were the hot properties of the '60s, which were Batman, Bond, and the Beatles. When it came mm-hmm. to my introduction to rock music, my I had an older sister who handed me down all her old Beatles albums, and I was obsessed with the Beatles, which led me to the Who and the Kinks and a lot of British rock. So, just in terms of what I what I was just uh engorging myself with when it came to pop culture there was so much of it came from the UK and so I guess that started a love affair with with uh with the England I never quite got over but yeah Bond for me I mean again referencing Sean Connery when I first saw those films I was like this is the coolest thing ever <laughs> and I, I became a big fan of sort of just the spy genre in general but Those films for me are just it's like I was talking about just pure escapism in in the best possible way, just well crafted fantasy, you know,
0: but it's just so funny how age uh, fits into that because you're probably like six or seven years older than me. And so my guy is Christopher Reeve. And I could recite the Christopher Reeve movies and Superman 2 was the greatest thing in the world. And the Richard Donner cut is the greatest thing in the world. And I talk about it with the passion that you talk about stuff from the 60s, the the Batman show, because I saw the Batman show in reruns, just like I saw Star Trek in reruns.
1: Well, I did too. I mean, I I mostly, you know, I came of age in in the 70s. So a lot of that stuff that I was watching were all reruns. By the time I was watching Bond movies in a theater, Roger Moore had already taken over. So it wasn't like I was actually there when Sean Connery was uh you know making a name for himself as James Bond but for some reason I was always sort of like looking behind me and kind of digging stuff that was a little bit um you know ahead of my time
0: there have been so many people that have played James Bond and everyone has an opinion on who the best Bond is do you think that ultimately we can have another person be Iron Man do you think that Chris Evans has the monopoly on Captain America or do you think, or Hugh Jackman, that's, that's a good, a better example. Is Hugh Jackman the only Wolverine? Because if there can be how many James Bonds have there been, there have been eight James by eight mm-hmm. James Bonds. Um, but there's only been one Wolverine and what is too soon when we see another guy put that costume on. And I always thought that if uh, Chadwick Boseman hadn't have passed, um, Black Panther 2, I thought they were going to introduce Storm. I thought that was their introduction to the idea because there's a comic book and it comes back. You know, T'Challa falls in love with the Aurora Monroe and that now there's Storm and you meet Storm's world and there's right. your introduction to Professor X. And does it have to be Hugh Jackman? Can you have another Wolverine? And what what's too soon? You know, nobody asked... Ewan McGregor, he was playing a young Obi-Wan Kenobi. So there was, you understood that parallel, but why is it that we can have every three or five years, you can have another James Bond, but heavens to Betsy, you cannot have another Wolverine. And I just wonder how that works.
1: That's ridiculous. I mean, the people who are saying that are stuck on that character and I get it, but it's insane. Of course, all these characters can be played by multiple actors. It's like saying there can only be one Hamlet no one comes, no one brings these things up when it comes to uh, plays by Shakespeare or even interpretations of great characters of fiction like Robin Hood or Sherlock Holmes or something. Of course, there can be multiple actors playing any of these roles. It's just people get so attached to and so affectionate for their version of that character that they, stamp their feet and they throw a little tantrum which is childish and ridiculous i mean look how many spider-men we've had in the past decade how many batmen have we had in the past couple decades of course these characters can be reinvented and reinterpreted by other performers and i understand nobody wants to see iron man played by anyone else by robert but robert downey jr until someone great comes along and puts on that costume and gives a really great performance and then all will be forgotten so but there's a continuity
0: light- issue there because never once has there been this this story being told across, you know this this one universe, and that I think that's the idea is that do you is it Marvel's job now to continue this universe and bring next generations or does or can they just start over? Uh,
1: I think now
0: we're hardcore. This this I, just became the Hall of Justice.
1: I think it's it's <laughs> it behooves them to not reboot the story all over again right now because they have so much goodwill based on the story that they told i would just say move forward um you know there have been there's other iron men you know besides tony stark that you can move forward with i mean you can the character can go on while the identity of the person inside the suit changes i mean comics have certainly taught us that people come back from the dead and things happen all the time in comics they give you an enormous amount of leeway in terms of when it comes to your storytelling so I would rather see Marvel move forward than try to go back and start all over again. But look, they know what they're doing. They know how to make a buck. That's just my personal opinion. But I think, you know, I'd love to see another actor take a shot at Wolverine. I'd love to see another actor take a shot at some of these characters because it just, it's just another interpretation and the old, the old versions aren't going anywhere. You can always go back and
0: (laughs) watch them. They're
1: right there for you. We live in a world where every imaginable medium is at your fingertips. So you're not losing anything.
0: Well, and, it, and it's funny that you say that because a lot of times, a lot of people, uh, you know, look at this and everybody feels that passion. And that's the genesis from how this genre has the like, that's how this podcast can exist, because people have that opinion. I remember uh, we did an episode, one of my favorite episodes of this show was when Chris Pine shows up in the first Wonder Woman trailer the, uh, for the sequel. Mm-hmm. And you know, spoilers, he, he dies in Wonder Woman one. <laughs> right. And we did an episode called How the Hell is Chris Pine in Wonder Woman two? It wasn't even Wonder Woman 1984 at that point. And I said, there's all these theories and I can't wait to see that Wonder Woman film just because I want to find out which one of those cockamamie theories was the existence and whether or not that's even possible.
1: Yeah. Well, that that passion and those those questions are not lost on the filmmakers. And they put him in that trailer for a reason because they knew that's how we would react. I mean, it's it's possible. It's brilliant.
0: All right. Last uh, last uh, superhero question. And that is, if I watch every episode of The Mandalorian, The Boys, everything on the CW, and I've seen Batman v Superman six times, but I haven't bought a comic book in three years. Am I a comic book fan?
1: hmm that's a great question i would say did you read a lot of comics when you were younger
0: okay what if that person's 20 and their exposure to marvel is robert downey jr and chris evans and they never saw some of the you know the great the neil adams work they never have read they, the they've Dark never picked Night up Return. a
1: comic never not one
0: no but they love the characters
1: hmm um I, I think I think I, I, I you can call yourself it. a comic fan because those are the characters. That's the source of material of that. But I don't think you can call yourself a comic book fan unless you actually hold one in your hand and read it.
0: When was the last comic book you read? And I'm not uh, calling you out on it. I'm just
1: wondering. No, I don't read nearly as much as... I don't as know I, either. Uh, the, I last, the
0: last thing I read was when um, the Batman 66 met uh, Wonder Woman 77. That was online and that was cool because Linda Carter met uh met you know Adam, Adam West, West Batman yes. and I thought that was really smart and really unique but that was it i mean did I you read batman
1: 66 meets the green horn one
0: that you guys wrote yes i yes. read that i just did. a little
1: plug there uh the last thing i read was uh detective comics 1000 when they were celebrating the 80th anniversary oh, wow. of batman and a bunch of uh, really talented guys did a bunch of short stories including my pal kevin smith had one in there as well um that's the last time i read a comic cover to cover yeah i'm I don't think there's anything wrong with that in the sense that this is going to make people very unhappy, but wonderful. The medium of comic books was largely created for the entertainment of children. I hate to break it to people, but that, (laughs) that really was their purpose and they have the original purpose. Yes. The original purpose was to give kids something to read that they would get a kick out of. And of course it has morphed and changed and evolved over the years. And that's fine. And all ages can enjoy graphic novels. And I get all of that. But if your, if your tastes in reading, if you outgrow a, a genre or if you outgrow a medium, but you still enjoy the, the characters from that medium and you're still enjoying them in different forms, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Again, these are purity tests that we talk about, right? If, you don't, if you're not still buying comics, then you're not a comic book fan. I think there can be any grade of uh, of of fandom when it comes to that kind of stuff.
0: But I just think the companies are literally making them just to hold on to the licenses to have these characters so that they can make more movies and they're write-offs. And it's just literally, and I feel for them because we've had comic book writers and artists on this show and uh, Scott Collins and Ron Mars, and we've had some, a, a lot of these characters and they are, I just I think they're just, you know, they're lambs put out to to pasture because uh, th- those nothing is going to happen in those comic books that's going to influence what's going on on TV. If, and and this generation will know Daredevil from Charlie Cox, not from Kevin's books and Joe Quesada's books back in the 80s and 90s.
1: You're right. The comic book industry is struggling, but also has done themselves no favors by forgetting their original purpose, in my opinion. Hmm. The minute you stop. And or have stopped, like they have. The minute you've stopped making comics that lean towards a young audience, that lean towards kids, you have eliminated the possibility of grooming your next generation of customers and fans. And they decided, they made a conscious choice that we're now going to service just the 40 year old fanboys that still buy these books, and we're going to ignore 10 year olds. And so. They have no one to blame but themselves that they've never groomed another generation of kids who look forward to going to the rack and picking up a brand new comic book and reading about those characters. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can have the movies and also have good work in the comics, but they have abandoned the the younger audience to the extent that now they're saying, hey, how come kids aren't buying comic books anymore? And it's like, well, you stopped making comic books for kids. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's no no question. Uh, the best way I can close this podcast uh, is very simply to say, uh, there are a couple of things that I know that I'm a massive fan of uh, that I recommend to people and I do it this way. I say this about NHL hockey and I say it about Prince. And I say <laughs> for all the people that you if, you if you know, if you don't know anything about hockey and you don't know anything about Prince, all I say is, See the guy live. Uh, well, now you can't, but see a video of him of him live. Or go to a hockey game and look me in the eye and tell me it sucks. And I will say this about the Ralph Report. Get it once. Try it. What is it? Three bucks? Get Try it once. And then listen to a handful of these episodes. Look me in the eye and tell me it's awful. It will change your life. It is one <laughs> of the things... That I listen to, especially now in quarantine, I will literally try to take walks without my kids so I can listen to the Ralph report because I don't want to hear about their day. I've heard about their day already. I know about their day. I'd like to walk for 20 goddamn minutes and listen to some guy eat food or some some goofy thing. Yeah. And that's and 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 then that's what it is. Um I, you know, you don't do Hollywood Babylon uh, anymore the way you, you did, and hopefully you'll, you'll get back to it soon. Yeah. But I have to say, if for 2020, the podcast of the year was the Ralph Report. You had a hell of a year. You've had a hell of a run, and I congratulate you. And I, I, I promise if you come back, I won't kiss your ass this much because it's a little uncomfortable for me just in the idea that I swear to you, that podcast is really fucking good.
1: Oh, Seth, thank you so much. That means the world to me. And if you don't kiss my ass this much, I'm not coming back. So, All right, we had a good run. You better kiss my ass next time I come back. I'm getting used to it.
0: I got to think of something new then. (laughs) Well, we didn't even touch on Family Guy.
1: I know. There's so much. I'm such an an onion. So many layers to be (laughs) peeled, Seth.
0: And Family Guy is uh, a show that when it was canceled, I thought wow, that you want to talk about another saga? Family Guy was a show that was literally canceled and it was just doing well on DVDs and reruns. And I said, this show is hysterical. And all of a sudden they brought it back and now it's going on these these runs and I'm not comparing it to The Simpsons, even though they constantly do. But oh my God, that's the gift that keeps on giving.
1: Yeah, uh, Seth, my buddy Seth McFarlane is uh, one of those guys who, his whole life has been dotted with these moments you know where just everything changed on a dime and by all by like all he rights was
0: supposed to be on the plane
1: yeah like the plane the, on nine eleven. flight yeah he was too hung over to, to get to the airport that's wild um but yeah for, by all accounts and you know family Guy should have disappeared and then it came back and i'm glad it did because i didn't start working on the show until it, it got brought back by fox that's when i started my career on that show so uh, that has been a huge part of my life too because then seth put me in ted and a million ways to die in the west and everything else right, that he's right. done as well so oh,
0: there's got to be another podcast then because we haven't covered any of that
1: yeah so um didn't
0: bring any of my preparation <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm happy to come back anytime sir
0: there you go man there you go It's as, as if you don't have enough uh, podcasts to do uh ralph how can people find you online i do this all the time
1: I appreciate it. You can go to Patreon.com slash The Ralph Report if you'd like to subscribe to our show or you can go to the website, TheRalphReport.com and we throw up uh, free sample episodes from time to time if you want to take a listen. And at Ralph the- Garmin on Twitter, I'm always around so you can find me.
0: And that Spotify playlist of all the one-hit wonders that you guys yes. do? Yes. Holy crap, is that good? That is such, that's so much fun. Uh, so there you have it. That's how you reach uh, Ralph Garman. So if there's anything you heard, in this podcast that you didn't like or you have an issue with, do me a favor, reach out to Ralph directly and leave me the <laughs> hell out of it. Uh, that's Ralph Garman. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it and uh, continue to give us the rate, ratings and the reviews. That's how iTunes markets podcasts because uh, some of us are just regular folk and we're not on Patreon. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Hall of Justice. See you then.
1: Hey, baby, don't